Let me just briefly tell you uh, some of the uh, components of a trial. The first thing that uh, will happen will be the attorneys will address you in what we call opening statements. What he did know, what he did see, was a black boy walking down the street on Pulaski towards a chain link fence and having the audacity to ignore the police. They want you to look at the final chapter without reading the rest of the book. They want you to go in for the final two minutes of a two-hour movie without knowing the context. The next phase of the trial is what we call the evidentiary uh, portion of the trial. I think we're all familiar with uh, getting on the witness stand and taking uh, swearing or taking the oath uh, to tell the truth. Why didn't you fire your weapon? Um, we were trying to buy time to, to have a taser. Did you continue to hear the gasping or the gurgling coming from the body of Laquan McDonald? No, it uh, stopped shortly after. Up on the screen is the second video that you talked about, correct? Yes, sir. This is the one where he was given a time parameter of 14 to 15 seconds to fire all 16 shots. I'll play that video. Shooter ready? Stand by. said uh, that it upset you. Uh, did you blurt something out? Yes, I did. Okay, and what was that? Um, I, I said, why the F are they still shooting him when he's on the ground? And again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I know I'm speaking for all the parties involved here. If it wasn't for wonderful people like yourselves, we would not have our form of government. From WBEC Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. Today, jurors on the Jason Van Dyke case are on break, and so we're taking a moment to zoom out and look at how the trial has gone so far. All the witnesses we heard from this week were brought to the stand by prosecutors. Jurors heard from officers on the scene that night. They saw pictures of Laquan McDonald's gunshot wounds, and they heard expert testimony on when it's justified for a police officer to shoot. The prosecution rested their case, and next week, the defense will have a chance to present their case. They're scheduled to start that on Monday. We asked a couple of legal experts to join us and break down what we've seen so far. Sharon Mitchell Jr. is a former assistant Cook County public defender and is now the program director of the Illinois Justice Project. Robert Loeb is a former Cook County prosecutor and current defense attorney. We also have Shannon Heffernan, reporter for WBEZ and this podcast. You know, first, I want to hear from each of you what most stands out about the prosecution's case so far. Shannon, I'll come to you first. Well, I think that they were able to get a, a couple of different officers take the stand and testify that they did not feel like um, they had to shoot, that they did not feel like Laquan McDonald was presenting that kind of threat. Why didn't you fire your weapon? He didn't make any direct movement at me. Um, I also think that they got some fairly uh, strong testimony from a former FBI agent and use of force expert saying that in his analysis of the video, there was uh, no need to use deadly force and shoot. Robert, your thoughts? I think that the key to the case for the prosecution, and there's no surprise here, 14, 16 shots. 15, 16 times in total. Clearly, the 16 shots are the most powerful evidence for the prosecution, not only did Van Dyke 
fire 16 shots, but as Shannon just referred to, the other officers didn't feel the need at all. What about for you, Sharon? What stood out most in the prosecution's case? I think the testimony of Jose Torres and his son was very powerful. You know, these are two witnesses that don't have a dog in the fight. They don't have a horse in the race. They aren't law enforcement. They don't know Laquan McDonald. They don't know Jason Van Dyke. They just happen to be there. And you have this excited utterance that I think that if I were the state, would be the first lines I would say in my closing arguments, why are they still shooting him? You know, so that's that's close to what Robert's talking about. But I think that that's that's somebody that has no reason to lie. And the cross-examination... There wasn't much there. They were able to see. They're not biased. Robert, how effective do you think the defense was in pushing back against the prosecution's evidence? Well, I think they brought out a few effective things uh, in terms of the perception of officers. And yet, I don't think they've won the case at this point. I think that uh, we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to what they bring up in in their case in chief. I think that'll be really important. And what sense do you have of that defense strategy right now, Sharon? Well, I think 100% is putting Laquan McDonald on trial. Laquan McDonald was on a wild rampage through the city. Uh, They are going to want the jury to be hearing about the things that he's done before, the things that happened earlier in the day, uh, the damage he committed to the car and to the windshield. Uh, If they can get the jury to think about Laquan McDonald and not think about Jason Van Dyke, I think the defense thinks they're in a good place. They're also, I think, going to be really emphasizing this idea of the split-second decision that he had to make and what might have physiologically been happening from Van Dyke in that moment. We know from their opening statements that they probably are going to emphasize that he was under stress, that there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure, and that might have caused him to shoot that um, 16 times, that number we keep hearing. They want to shrink those 16 shots into one single decision that was made to protect both the officers on the scene and other potential folks. It's one split-second decision. It's not 16 individual decisions. Um, You would agree with me that when you're firing your weapon at that rapid rate of speed, you are not thinking consciously about each single trigger pull, correct? Correct. Correct. It's it's one thought to fire and shoot 16 rounds as fast as you can, right? If that's what I'm trying to do, absolutely. You know, there was a lot of testimony this week from expert witnesses saying Van Dyke shouldn't have shot Laquan McDonald and it was unnecessary. In the defense's opening statements, they talk about Van Dyke not getting up that morning and planning to go out and and kill Laquan McDonald. Is that something the defense will likely play up in their strategy, Robert? Absolutely. And I think that that is a pretty good point. Jason Van Dyke is not a murderer. Jason Van Dyke had no intent to go out and kill Laquan McDonald. Jason Van Dyke never knew Laquan McDonald. He had no reason to have animosity toward him other than the heat of the moment. And so, sure, there wasn't that kind of motive. So with that in mind, when the defense, as you said, Sharon, puts Laquan McDonald on trial, the fact that they didn't know each other, that Van Dyke had no knowledge of Laquan McDonald's past, how do they reconcile those two things? Well, they skip over it. You know, you know, they're not going to try to make the case that Jason Van Dyke knew Laquan McDonald, and that's the reason why he shot. But we do know that 
evidence of his past aggression uh, can be considered by the jury and um, it may be considered to determine what he was going to do if he hadn't been shot, right? What happens if he gets to the Burger King or gets to the Dunkin' Donuts? So I, I want to talk about some of the more difficult parts of the trial to watch. Um, I've been watching it online as it's preceded. Um, the dash cam video has been shown more than 15 times. Um, there are some very grisly autopsy photos that have been shown. Uh, is that a photograph of... Gunshot wound uh, number one. Yes. And I wonder about the impact on the jury and and the risk of desensitizing them to some of these images. Sharon? Well, I don't think it's a unique strategy for uh, state's attorneys who are prosecuting murders. Uh, I think that they believe that um, jurors seeing the damage and the carnage uh, will call for them to do something about it. In a case like this, I think you got, if you're the prosecutor, you got to bring home the violence. Mm-hmm. Sharon, from your perspective, did the prosecution make any missteps? I, I think that, you know, trial advocacy is more art than science. Um, so there can always be uh, some Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, I do think that there was probably a little bit more space to attack. Um, the testimony of Officer Walsh, which is actually a witness that they put on. The state's attorney called Officer Walsh, who is a partner, who was the partner of Jason Van Dyke that night. Um, Officer Walsh really tried to change the jury's view of the video and basically say that the video that you are watching right now is not the perspective that I actually saw because, and Van Dyke saw because we were at a different angle. Um, There's this idea that somehow your perspective changes reality. Um, So the idea that maybe because I was facing this way, his arm raised, but because you're looking at it this way, his arm didn't. Um, I think that that is a place for real ample cross-examination. And that may bring in a question why they called Officer Walsh as a witness because they really can't cross-examine them, right? Because they're the people putting the evidence on. We've also been getting a lot of questions from people following the trial on the podcast, and I want to take a few minutes with you to try to answer some of those questions. We got a question that says, um, the person who called 911 on McDonald said that he was apparently stealing radios. Where are the stolen radios? The person who called 911 said he lunged at them with a knife. Did the police interview them? Do we know who they are exactly? So it's alleged that he was attempting to steal radios, so that doesn't necessarily mean he had radios on his person. I've not seen any evidence that he had a backpack with him, and his property that was taken at the medical examiner's office didn't include a backpack. We do expect that we're going to hear from the person who alleges that uh, Laquan McDonald came at them with a knife because that was mentioned in opening statement by the defense team. They said, you're going to hear from this person who says Laquan was trying to attack them. Sharon, another question that we got was this. Are the jurors allowed access to the news? Jurors are instructed not to talk about the case and not to watch the news. The theory is that the jurors should only hear uh, what is presented to them by witnesses in a case. Now, 
reality is reality, and and who knows what happens. Um, but uh, they are not supposed to listen to the news. We're answering some of the questions that have come in this week about the murder trial of Jason Van Dyke. And with us to answer these questions are WBEZ criminal justice reporter Shannon Heffernan, who has been reporting from the courthouse this week. Also with us are Sharon Mitchell, Jr., program director of the Illinois Justice Project, and Robert Loeb. He's a former Cook County prosecutor and current defense attorney. So one of the questions that came in was about officer procedure. They asked, shooting a fleeing suspect as a last resort, is it an opinion or is it the law? There is no specific law that talks about this specific scenario. Basically, what a jury will have to decide is whether it was necessary um, for Jason Van Dyke to use deadly force. Um, So this is going to be a question that kind of spins around the facts of the case. You know, one of the things you'll hear from the state's attorneys uh, is that there was a taser that was on its way, and that taser could have been used to kind of resolve the situation in a less fatal way. And this question about when the taser was going to arrive on the scene... Did you or Officer Torres have a taser? I had a taser. I believe we were reaching 59th and Pulaski when the transmission came out that shots were fired. This is the first time that I had heard it broken down this clearly, that the taser arrived on scene less than a minute after uh, the shooting. It was a really powerful piece of testimony. We actually got to see the dash camera of the car in which the taser was was in uh, racing toward the scene. And uh, there's a view of Laquan McDonald from that car laying on the ground with a few officers standing around him. It was a very close, close case. Another person asked, why CPD uses the term offender rather than using the term suspect? Sharon? You know, words matter a lot in, in juries and courtrooms, and words convey meaning. Um, so, for instance, you know, as a defense attorney, I was a former defense attorney, I never used the word defendant. I would always use the word accused, right, because the word accused uh, says something very different about a person. Uh, that's the same thing that we're seeing here when uh, Chicago Police Department described Laquan McDonald. They described him as a person they were engaging, a person that they felt like was committing crime. So that's why you'll hear offender or, or the words they choose will kind of convey what they're thinking. And this language I, I, it has come up a lot in the trial. They are not allowed to use the word victim to refer to Laquan McDonald. The, the prosecution team is not allowed to use that word. Um, and it's been really interesting to see how different people on the stand refer to Laquan McDonald or Jason Van Dyke. For example, when Joe Walsh took the stand, he's Van Dyke's partner, Mm -hmm. he was um, looking at the video and he was asked to circle the defendant. He circled Laquan McDonald, not Jason Van Dyke, who is actually the defendant in this case. And then he said, sorry. And I think that just kind of gets to the heart of how important this language is and how solidified it is in um, some people's minds and how they perceive the situation. It's also telling commentary on Officer Welsh's perspective on the whole case. Mm. Um, Another question, pardon me, that came in is about the perception of threat. Um, It's about a question the prosecution asked yesterday. Is not listening to an officer or not giving eye contact actually perceived as a threat? Robert? I think the answer is no. I The defense might not agree with me on that. Any person on the street is likely to make contact with 
another person he encounters, and in particular, a police officer. Now, there will be, there was testimony uh, yesterday from uh, the former FBI agent, the expert, the use of force expert, who testified that there are a number of basically things that you can look at uh, when determining whether somebody is threatening. And one of those, in you know, a totality of circumstances test, is whether a person is making eye contact. The defense will argue that that was something that Van Dyke saw that gave him a reason to act in the way he did, in the manner that he did. So there was another question about the trial resuming on Monday and whether or not Jason Van Dyke will testify. I know we don't know for sure, but any indication at all, Shannon? Well, we didn't hear it referenced in opening statements. That, that, that by no means is a sign that it absolutely won't happen. But if they for sure knew they were going to have him take the stand, they might have mentioned that. But, I mean, I, I'm interested in your all's perspective as lawyers. Would that be something you would ever tip your hand on if you were on the defense team? Or would that be something you'd be keeping in your back pocket? Go ahead, Sharon. I wouldn't promise it. Um, I think one of the key things here in this particular case is that you would want somebody to get on the stand and say, I was really in fear. I did this because I was trying to protect myself, my partner. Typically, that would come from Van Dyke himself. In this case, it actually came from Officer Walsh's partner. So that may play into um, the defense's calculation about whether they'll put him on the stand or not. And you have to remember, if they put him on the stand, he's open to cross-examination, right? And if they don't have a strong sense that Van Dyke is going to fare well in that situation— it's a risky move for them to make, right? It is, but they really would want to humanize him as well. So that's one of the reasons why you'd want to put him on the stand. You know, juries care about stories. They care about people. And the opening statement of uh, the defense was him waking up in the morning and kissing his kids and waking up with his wife. You're going to want to tell that story. It'd be nice to tell that story if you were the defense. Robert, any final thoughts as we wrap up here? Yeah, he can expect a cross-examination that could be very withering. Officer Van Dyke, what were you thinking about your life being in jeopardy after the 12th shot? How were you afraid after the 13th shot? Um, It can be very powerful. As we said earlier, Van Dyke's attorneys are scheduled to begin presenting their defense on Monday. But Van Dyke's attorneys are not required to put on a defense. They could just argue to jurors that the prosecutors didn't prove their case. Whatever they decide to do, we'll be there, and we'll bring that to you next time on 16 Shots. Sixteen Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots. Check this podcast feed regularly for updates from the trial of Officer Jason Van Dyke. And listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth and providing you with the stories that impact your community as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting like 16 Shots by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16 shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.